I love the fact that you've you've identified those fears and you're about professional courage. So how do you help people get past those now in the role you have now? I think a lot of it is clarity. So in the same way that people think they don't know what they really want to do, kind of helping them tap into that, and which is typically a process that kind of begins with just talking about your general value structure. I do a lot of work with clients on what their internal and their external values are. So from an external perspective, what are the tasks that you enjoy? What industries or interests do you have? What needs to be present in your environment for you to thrive at work? And then internally, much more around what fulfills us, what attributes we hope to embody or currently embody in our lives, and you know, sort of how we take in information and make decisions. And bringing some clarity around those pieces and understanding what's important to us usually then allows someone to have a level of clarity or to be able to get on the path to figure out, okay, what is it that I truly want to go after? And then that clarity later in the process helps to sort of fight some of that fear. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Cardavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. This is episode 62 with Chris McWiggin. She's going to talk today about courageous career advancement, strategies for designing and achieving your desired career and business path. Chris has been on her own journey about her career, which has led her to entrepreneurship. In fact, she now helps people through her business, professional courage to design their own career path, their career advancement, and most importantly, to get clear on what really matters to them and to help them through coaching and other support to get past the many fears that keep us from having that career path that is truly ours. I know you're going to be excited to hear what Chris has to share with us, so get ready to step into your fear and move your career in your direction. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are back here for the Impact Leadership Podcast. And Craig and I have another fantastic guest today, a good friend of mine, Chris McWiggin. I just learned for the first time today after six or seven years that I've been pronouncing her last name wrong for all these years. So thankfully, I only refer to her as Chris for all these years. But Chris Nobody's ever called you slow, Jeff. Well, well, no, I have been called slow. Only by my enemies, though. So Christmas McWiggin is with us. She is the founder and CEO, president, person who makes things happen with the company called professional courage and she helps people empower themselves in their career and shows them the path to see career advancement as not just a transaction but a part of just a way of being and living in their life so welcome chris yeah thank you so much Glad to have you. happy to be here so chris give us a little bit of the chris mcwiggin and professional courage story Okay, well, Jeff, you actually played a role in the Chris McGuigan professional courage story. Um, so going way back briefly, when I was in my mid-20s, I had a little bit of a 
quarter life crisis and was wondering what I really wanted to do with my life and had been working in healthcare in project management role and wasn't finding the fulfillment I was looking for. So I did a little bit of career work and self-directed career assessment. And after several months of talking to different people and reading different books, I discovered I was probably the only person that was on, you know, mid twenties who was doing their own self-directed career search, <laughs> uh, which led me to realize that that's probably an area of interest for me. <laughs> and so I decided to start pursuing some different credentials in that arena actually opened up my business, officially filed for the LLC, and then very quickly out of a fear of failure and a variety of other life events, I sort of closed up my dream, put it into a box and up onto a shelf, and I went about my day. And uh, my personal and professional life brought quite a bit over the next decade. I got married and had children and got divorced, and during that time continued to follow the corporate carrot, uh, fortunately in healthcare and moved up to administration and was getting better jobs and bigger offices and more money and still not finding the fulfillment I was looking for. Mm -hmm. So I started to get an itch, wondered what I could do to kind of step back into that interest point that I had around really building my own business and showing other people how to face their fear doing it myself. And uh, through a series of serendipitous events, one of which was meeting you at a Toasters, Toastmasters meeting one afternoon. I sort of just decided that enough was enough. I was tired of recommending everybody else follow their dreams while I safely returned <laughs> to my, you know, my office each Monday. And I decided to quit my job and jump all into professional courage. Wow. Well, you have definitely demonstrated what it looks like to leap. And I know <laughs> we'll get more of that story as we go into this. Or to pounce if you're right. looking at the picture of the lion on the wall. There you go. <laughs> we'll have to ask your clients whether you pounce on yeah. them or not. <laughs> so, Chris, go back to, to I want to just start with this foundation. You talked about being the only person in their mid 20s who was taking ownership of their career path. Mm -hmm. That's how I heard it. Mm -hmm. Talk about that, what that means, and why you think more people don't. So I wouldn't say I was the only person taking ownership. I was the only one who wanted to be really proactive. I, I was the only person I knew who really wanted to be proactive and was going through the exercises of all these self-directed inventories and reading the books and trying to assess based upon my past experiences, where did I have the greatest strength and where could I really use my skills and what was my true mission in life? Those type of questions uh, I did not have in common with my peers. <laughs> and so I think that uh, particularly at the early stage of your career, and I certainly find this when I'm working with clients who are much further along, we all at some point just kind of fall into the passenger seat. Some people maybe get in intentionally to sit in the passenger seat because coming out of school are a little bit too nervous to take a more proactive role. Mm. But suddenly it starts working and we begin driving toward a destination that's not determined by us and it becomes <laughs> comfortable and easy and it takes quite a while for people to suddenly realize that someone else is driving that car. Mm. Wow, that is so good. I, I have, I guess the first several jobs that I had were just kind of things that fell in my lap rather than totally intentional. Uh, I, did, I, did, I was intentional about one thing, ended up staying there 11 years and then spinning out my first company from them. But it was, uh, it, it's interesting to say that, okay, I finally realized that I was doing something that not everybody else was doing. And therefore, that is the passion that I want to pursue. I think that's a really good insight. It took quite some time to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what is, one thing I'm intrigued by is you've been on this journey for a while and you saw a lot of people that don't, aren't proactive in asking these questions, frankly. Mm -hmm. Why don't they though? Everybody's scared. 
Right. But what are they scared of? Let's get, yeah. what are they really afraid of? Yeah, so I think a lot of individuals actually already know what they really want to do or what they mm. feel like they're meant to do and are just afraid that that's not within reach. And so we spend a lot of time telling ourselves we're not sure what that is or convincing ourselves that whatever that objective might be, it's, it's not possible, right? We make a lot of assumptions. I wouldn't make enough money if I did that. I would never succeed. I'd have to move my family. My wife wouldn't be supported, whatever we're telling ourselves, mm. um, so that it, it can continue to be something that we sort of keep off to the side. Because if you go after the thing you want most in the world and don't make it there, that, you know, that's devastating or worse yet. And you and I have discussed this, Jeff, what if you do make it there, right? That opens up a whole other can of worms <laughs> in terms of how you have to live your life. And so I think people, you know, deep down in my experience, most people do actually know what they want to do. They're just absolutely terrified to acknowledge and then go after that. Wow. Well, you, you put a lot in there, Chris, and I want to peel some of that apart for everybody. So the first thing you talked about was the fear that people have that it just won't work that the, whatever they love somehow doesn't have as clear a path, typically to income, frankly. It's usually about money. Definitely. So I want to list them. I heard you say that fear. I heard you say the fear that if they go for what they really care about and fail, and I think this is a big one, that's a fail that some people don't know if they can handle. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's, I actually don't think that's very conscious fear. I think that's more of an unconscious fear that people are saying inside there's this voice that says, if you go for it and you can't make it work, that's catastrophic because that means I really wasn't good enough somehow. And I think it's tied to the third one. What if it actually works? And I think that's a worthiness question too. Do I, re am I really worthy of someone who can go make, make this work? Uh, and maybe I am, but there's a story that says I'm not. I love the fact that you've, you've identified those fears and you're about professional courage. So how do you help people get past those now in the role you have now? I think a lot of it is clarity. So in the same way that people think they don't know what they really want to do, kind of helping them tap into that, and which is typically a process that kind of begins with just talking about your general value structure I do a lot of work with clients on what their internal and their external values are. So mm. from an external perspective, what are the tasks that you enjoy? What industries or interests do you have? What needs to be present in your environment for you to thrive at work? And then internally, much more around what fulfills us, what attributes we hope to embody or currently embody in our lives, and you know, sort of how we take in information and make decisions. And bringing some clarity around those pieces and understanding what's important to us usually then allows someone to have a level of clarity or to be able to get on the path to figure out, okay, what is it that I truly want to go after? And then that clarity later in the process helps to sort of fight some of that fear. Hmm. That makes sense. So, so there's something I, I want to touch base on here about this fear, Chris, that fear that we don't know if it'll work. One thing that I find fascinating about that is Actually, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So years ago, I was introduced to a gentleman, his mother, I got to know his mother, he's from Cleveland, and he was in California at the time, and he got into the movie industry and had some significant success. He was, he was a producer, he was making movies at a pretty high level, some pretty high companies, and I had a cup of coffee with him when he was visiting Cleveland. Fantastic story, but I looked at him and I said, wow, good for you, you took all that risk. But what he said was, he said, Jeff, what was the risk? 
He said, first of all, I was, I was, I was blessed because he said, I was blessed because my parents were well off. They could pay for my college. So I did not have college debt. But he said, on top of that, what do I have? So he went to California, found a roommate out there. He had no job. He said, I have no mortgage. I have no relationship. I have no kids. He said, the truth is I really didn't have anything to lose. Hmm. And people think they have things to lose, but I didn't. He said, it really wasn't that big of a risk. If it didn't work, I go, oh, well, that was kind of fun. I hung out at the beach and I partied a lot. And he even took on a year of an internship where he didn't get paid at a studio and did the odd jobs at night. But I think it's interesting because so many people say, I can't take the risk, but I don't know if they actually assess if there is a risk. Well, uh, so I'll, I'll tell a bit about my own story if I can, which is I think when I was in my mid-20s and wanted to, uh, you know, thought about starting a business and went about getting a name and some credentials and a few clients and then quickly said, ah, oh, this is too scary. You know, I, it was a fear of failure for me. It was an absolute, that was the biggest risk I felt like I was taking because I had financial backing to be okay. It was what happens if this doesn't work out. And then, um, as I mentioned, a lot had happened in my personal life after I put that dream away for a while. So when it was time to take it back out of the box, at that point, quite frankly, I had uh, what I had previously defined as failed so heavily in my personal life that the failure in my professional life didn't seem nearly scary because mm-hmm. I think ultimately we're not fa- we don't fail until we're done, right? And so yeah. even if he had, he had a lot to risk and went out and did those things on the West Coast, as long as he doesn't stop until he gets where he thinks he's meant to be, you haven't technically failed yet. You're just continually trying and gaining more information. So for me, it was uh, a massive fear of failure and that the perspective that per- my personal life gave me on that, on that word uh, sort of changed the dynamic for me. So I mm-hmm. wasn't, even though it was a much riskier financial move the second time around, that was, was not something to stop me. It was more around like, hey, you know what? If this doesn't work out, worst thing that happens is I just go back to the career I had before. I'm okay with that. And that's such a good perspective. I mean, it's, it's like Edison saying, yeah, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I found 10,000 things that didn't work. We, we had an interview just recently, probably the episode before this, that the person, uh, he tried creating something and he went through hundreds of iterations before he found how it was going to work. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of those things that it is, it, it is so much our mindset that it is holding us back and, and it's those fears, it's those perspectives that, oh, either I'm not good enough or I can't do that, or lo and behold, if something doesn't work, I'm going to be crushed. And I, I'm not going to be able to face those people around me because it'll be too embarrassing. But well, it doesn't have to be that way. That's what I think is one of the unexpected benefits of being an entrepreneur, right? Is you have to learn to fail fast. There's no Ooh. time, right? You can't, you cannot possibly start on this journey and not expect to fail or need to continue to stumble and reinvent. Yeah. So I think that it, um, it definitely teaches you that lesson very quickly that you can't be successful unless you fail and do so again very quickly. Gotta have a thick skin. Yes. <laughs> what about, the, uh, what do you attribute what I'll call the cultural script? I think most of us, well, we're all, I'm the oldest here. Obviously, you're a lot younger, Chris. Craig's closer in age to me. I know that I grew up with a script that said, in general, we don't get to do what we love. Hmm. That was a script that I heard. I mean, that was the narrative when I was growing up. You, that's not what life is about. 
Life is about take, getting an income that takes care of your family and takes care of your responsibilities. And in general, you don't get to do what you really love and care about. So how much of that is still playing in this process of people not looking at what they love as a possibility? Um, I have to say that I didn't, wasn't brought up with that script. Um, I definitely see it in some of my clients, you know, as you mentioned, financial um, stability. In a lot of my clients, I work with men who happen to be the breadwinner in their family. And so the idea of kind of walking away for something very safe and secure with their spouse's support to step into something that may not be is definitely terrifying. Um, I, I think that it has more to do with people thinking outside of the box. So in, in my experience, you know, eight, nine times out of 10, individuals who've made it pretty far up the ladder don't know much about opportunities outside of the ladder that they have walked. <laughs> no, that is such a good insight. Right? Yes, I totally agree. And then as a result, they, they're compl- they just know they make good money. They don't understand that it's possible to make good money doing something else. <laughs> or so or they can actually make a whole bunch more money. Right, exactly. So sometimes it's just sort of testing that assumption and making sure that yeah. they understand that there was more than, you know, um, literally sort of shifting the mindset to look how many other people are also successful and they didn't take the same exact ladder as you or they're not currently in that same position. Yeah. So you, this, the single path you took is not the only way to define financial independence or wealth. So let's look, about, look at some of those other options and then test again the assumptions that it can't possibly be done. <laughs> well, let's, let's break this down, Chris, because as I'm listening to this conversation of all of us, it certainly sounds a lot like encouraging and supporting people who are going to go start something of their own or buy something of their own. So it's about being entrepreneurs. But I'm guessing a lot of your work is not about people starting a new business, but it is about making changes in their career. So talk about it from that perspective, not just the, I I love this, I'm gonna go do something and create my own business here. Sure it's often opportunities people aren't thinking of. So you're correct. Um, Oftentimes people that I work with are not heading off into the small business world, although many of them are certainly qualified to do so. It's much more about um, thinking outside of the standard box of what opportunities out there are available. Mm -hmm. So for example, was on the phone just the other day talking with someone who is uh, higher up in marketing. His perspective on the world is that marketing is what I do. I, you know, I've grown and moved into more digital marketing than, than what I used to do for an agency in the past, but marketing is it. That's what I'm great at. Okay, well, there's a lot of skill sets that make you good at marketing. And those skill sets happen to also be, you know, qualify you for a variety of other things. And recognizing that, um, particularly when you're higher up in an organization, your peers, your colleagues are the finance guy, the marketing guy, the operations guy right? They all kind of fit into these very neat buckets. And so he's thinking, well, I don't want to be in finance. So marketing's it. Okay. Well, there's a lot of positions that fall between those two things. And so kind of breaking our career, our role down into the different skills and strengths that we apply, and then going out and doing some brainstorming as to what those skills look like out in the world, really allow people to understand that there's much, there's, there's a quite a bit of positions in the gap that again, are still at a very high, in many cases, C-suite level that they are more than qualified for and would find much more fulfillment in. So how do you help people do that? Just what you said, because we all love to say we want to be out of the box, think out of the box. I mean, I think the challenge is figuring out actually how to do that and to, re- and to know if we really are out of the box. Or figure out what box we're in. Right, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Because to you, once, you know, if you're in the box, you don't know you're in a box because you're in the box. And as soon as you get out of the box, you just create a new box. 
Yeah. It's not written on the inside of the box. It's written on the outside of the box. Yeah, very true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mentioned a bit earlier, I think so much of it starts with our value system. I think clarity brings a lot of strength, a lot of courage, a lot of commitment to our lives. And so beginning with that sort of values assessment, and I think that a lot of the objective tools around strengths finders and the Keesley inventory and you know Myers, there's a million different objective assessments you can take. What I tell my clients is I'd like to believe at this stage of your career, you have a pretty good sense of what you love and what you're great at, whether or not oh, you can art- right? <laughs> well, whether or not they can articulate it is something different, yeah. but you know, we know what we're good at and what we love. So kind of bringing those items forward and capturing them, I have a tool that I call the values vault, which is just this sort of one page repository of what's important to you again, internally and externally. And then it's very scientific, incredibly scientific. We simply blend those values one or two together, and then we go research them online. And so uh, it's literally kind of an elementary school brainstorming activity that we do once we've identified our values and selected those that we find most uh, impactful or energizing to us at this stage of our life. Let's go mix those and see what they look like online. If I were to mix Um, strategic planning and the finance industry, what does that look like? When I go to Indeed and literally just type in those two keywords separated by a comma, what kind of roles come up? Not because you're going to start clicking on those jobs and applying to them, but so that while you're still in that brainstorming place, you're just getting a much broader picture of what's available to someone who has those two interests than simply what you've always known. I want to go back to something you mentioned early in the conversation, Chris, that has always fascinated me. And it's one of the, it fascinates me because I know it's one of the places where I annoy people the most. (laughs) And so that always tells me it's a good place to hang out. And that is you're saying people will tell you they don't really know what they want to do. And some version of if I did, I would pursue it. Um, My belief when people say that is that in fact, they do know. The problem is, and I think it's unconscious, they don't want to know, though. They say they do, but as soon as they know, now they've got a dilemma because now they've got a choice of either go after it or not. But as long as you don't know, you don't have to do anything. So how often do you see that showing up in your clients? And how, if so, how do you navigate that for them or with them? Showing up that now that they know they've got to actually go after it or just even the the challenge to see it because they're they're saying I really want to know so I can go know what I'm going to do. But they probably do know. Yes. So uh, as I mentioned a bit earlier, I used to be in project management. So I am a very linear thinker. I like Mm -hmm. there to be tasks and structure and a lot of process to get from point A to point Z. And so as a result, we, you know, I work with clients with actual exercises that we walk through. I mentioned the values vaults. Um, then we have this sort of brainstorming process where they're very heavily encouraged to think far outside of the box. Then the internet helps them do that and different job search engines and LinkedIn, you're just kind of researching different people. And then they end up with this massive list of things that they may or may not be interested in. Often that contains one or two of these ideas that were originally thrown out during a very first coaching conversation, but quickly tucked away so no one would see them. And then we kind of go through like, okay, so of everything on this page, if there were no limitations, where is your interest point? You know, tell me four or five of these that really seem like something you'd want to know more about if there were no limitations. And invariably, one, if not both of those fall onto this list of their top five. And then we go back to the sort of logic logistics point of, okay, now we need to do research to test our assumptions about this. 
Um, so yes, while because I love entertaining other people and I'm great at communication, maybe one of my values searches, my brainstorming led me to say I'd be great as a circus performer, but that's not going to pay the bills the way that I need it to. <laughs> so there is a process of then vetting these ideas you've come up with. Wait, wait. But, so how do you know if it's a limiting belief or you truly wouldn't be able to make that money? Because we really are going to go through, we actually go through that an evidence-based okay. decision-making criteria process. So okay. I encourage them during the brainstorming, be as open as you can, no limitations. Once we get down to some of these options you want to do a little bit more research on, the first point of high-level research entails, um, you know, so what are the basic requirements? So if you want to be a neurosurgeon, are you willing to go back to school for 10 years to make that happen? <laughs> what is the actual job demand? You know, when I'm working with people who are actively transitioning, what is the job demand for that type of position in your geographic area of interest? What is the average salary you can anticipate making based upon what the market tells us and some other staff that we might look at? And then how closely does this actually align with the values that we first identified now that you've had the chance to read a thorough job description about that particular role. So that's a high level um, sort of quick vetting process that we do to take those sort of circus entertainer and neurosurgeon off the list to get back down to some of those um, core things that he or she might be truly interested in. And then we sort of move down to however many levels of research or insight, informational conversations need to be held. But I find that there's one of two outcomes from those conversations. The first, it has forced some of my clients to have a little bit of a come to Jesus conversation because there are definitely, for a variety of reasons, I will end up talking with people who have um, who their true passion and the only way they can get back to work in a gainful place is to do something like, you know, um, become the coach of the next NBA championship team. Uh, and so sometimes going through the process of this vetting, this, this criteria, deci you know, decision-making criteria helps them to see, okay, well, so everything is a possible for anyone, but these are the amount of, these are the years you're going to have to take to get to that point. Are you willing to take that time? Yeah. No. Okay. Well then it's time to say to yourself, I'm going to let that dream go to rest. Right. I, I may not be the coach of the Lakers next year. Um, and then, but more often on the other side of it, people start to test their assumptions and really identify that depending on how they approach a role, whether it's as a consultant and entrepreneur, as we spoke earlier, or just moving up a leader of a, a, a um, to a leadership position, in either a small, medium or large business, they're going to be pretty comparable with the salary, if not exceeding where they're at now, being able to use these skill sets but not having some of the downsides to the job that they're currently experiencing. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Impact Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Cartavera. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartavera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartavera.com. Welcome back. And when you look at actually making that job transition, how much are you coaching them on the cultural fit between the, the role that they want and the company that they're going to look at? It really depends on the client and how... Um, how much they feel that cultural fit is important to them. So I think it's important to everyone, mm -hmm. but you definitely have some clients that are primarily concerned about the, um, the formal title of the position they're in. They're looking much more for that sort of status factor and or the income that's going to come with it. 
And in some of those cases, those individuals are more than willing to go into a variety of different roles as long Mm -hmm. as it ends up with one of those or both of those things. And then on the other case, I have clients who very early based upon their values assessment have identified that it's much more important to them that they work for a values-based employer or for Mm -hmm. a company that really um, stands for a mission they can get behind, in which case some of the other factors they're not as concerned about. So depending on whether or not they've identified the cultural fit as a major priority, we might talk about that a bit differently. And a lot of it has to do with some assessment you can do of a company ahead of time before you've targeted them. And certainly once you've made it into the interview process, all kinds of questions that you can ask during that process to kind of get down to some of those pieces and just be observant from what you're seeing. Hmm. How many people actually take a step back or take a step down to get some learning that they may not have had maybe their, their gaps in what they need for where they want to go. And so maybe they're willing to step back a little bit in order to move forward faster. I would say for the level of folks that I work with, it's, it generally tends to be more of a bridge situation as opposed okay. to a step back. So mm-hmm. again, I mentioned the size of company, perhaps someone's going to step out of a VP role at a mid, mid to large company, and they're going to step into a CIO role or a COO role in a smaller company so that they can get that title, that experience to slowly move back up into being in a larger company to be able to be at that same level. So um, I don't uh, don't know how often, I think it's less common people step out of their financial uh, comfort level and more common that they'll step away from a title or a size of organization in order to gather some of that learning. But when we look at some of the earlier career professionals I work with or mid-level managers, I see people making those kind of shifts pretty often. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. So to that point, Chris, uh, one thing I want to ask you is how often are you helping the client, your clients, I'm going to call it assess or reassess their fear. And what I mean by that is I came up with this idea a long time ago. I haven't thought about it in a while, frankly. I called it the fear box. Hmm. And people, who said, well, I have this fear about money fears or career path, whatever. And I would have them write down their fear, but they had to write it down very specifically. Like they might say, well, my, my fear is I won't be able to pay my mortgage. Well, so what that really means is your fear is you won't be able to pay your mortgage on the $350,000 house that you have in Shaker Heights. Mm-hmm. It did two things. Number one, it allowed them to see what the fear was about, which was more about change and perception than the numbers, like, yeah, they say, I don't need a $350,000 house. So I'm willing to make that step even back sometimes, because sometimes, especially if you want to start a business, you're going to have to step back for a little while. Yes. Then the other thing I call it a fear box is to say, write them all down. Now put them in a box, literally put them in a jar and now decide what you want without the fear and then assess what you want through the fears later. Because fears to me keep me from figuring out what I really want. Hmm. I think that's what happens. So I guess what's the dynamic of fear conversations in your work with your folks? So I'm right next to you, Jeff, on the, you know, let's get really clear about exactly what you're afraid of so that we can kind of put them into buckets. Often they fall into, you know, what I call the resistance factors. So yeah, it's financial, it's identity related. Um, and so, yes, I think the more clarity we get, the more we can assess time sometimes is, is a massive factor. The more we can assess uh, ways to look at that fear differently. Um, my approach is more so not to put it in a box, but rather now I want it right in front of you and I want to use that fear. Let's step into it instead, instead of stepping away from it. 
and then harness the power within that to really go after what you want to do. So um, if, as you said, which I find to be true, a lot of the fear is the fear of change. Um, let's talk about things that have changed that led to a much greater, stronger impact in your life and what your life would have looked like had you not actually addressed that fear and mm -hmm. gone after it. Yeah. Right. So again, it was similar to my situation. Um, I, I cannot fathom had I not made the decision <laughs> to sort of change my life, take my children and myself in a different direction from where we did. And so if that's what facing my fear meant and brought to me, then I was more than willing to do that from a professional perspective as well. So it's, I'm sure you brought that up at the end, Chris, because this has come up a number of times on the podcast. Uh, I know Craig and I have both talked about this, that so often we either don't talk about fear, which is a problem, but when we do, we only talk about the, the fear of the thing we're trying to do or the possible change. So this is, I'm afraid that if I leap, this might happen, mm -hmm. but we don't often consciously think about, well, what's, what might happen if I don't do anything? What's yes. the risk of that? Yes. Like not even on the table. Yes. And that's the most important fear to talk yeah. about. Yes. <laughs> what, I mean, if you, I think that you need to make things as easy as possible to move forward and as difficult as possible to retreat, right? Because, because it's, it's that retreat, in my opinion, that's going to lead to the most regret. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that a lot of people talk to entrepreneurs and they say, wow, you know, you had the courage to step out. You know, I, I kind of look at them and say, wow, you have the courage to stay in a job. Right. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a reframe. Mm -hmm. Sure. Absolutely. Well, it's been an interesting how slow the reframe has happened because, you know, going back a little bit further in time, 2000 and 2001 was really the first time we started to see this dramatically where people got a real dose of reality that the idea that they had job security was not <laughs> real. And then 2008 and 2009, they got smacked again in the head. And yet I saw so many people in 2007 to 2010, I met with so many people in transition who had the same mindset. I have to get back to that safe and secure job. I said, you've already got smacked in the head twice <laughs> by a shovel. Nothing secure about it, right? <laughs> you were unconscious apparently because it's what has changed. So it's really ingrained, isn't it? That belief system about how, what security, what is really safe and secure? Well, I want somebody else to take care of me. Yes, someone else to drive the car. Right. From a career perspective, look, if I still work for someone else, ultimately they get to decide when I'm ready for a promotion or we think they do. <laughs> ultimately, they get to decide how much money I can make or when, you know, when I obtain a new skill or I get stronger at a particular area versus, you know, that when you go off on your own or take more of a, um, an independent and prominent role in your own career advancement, that whole dynamic changes. And now you have yeah. a lot of decisions to make, a lot of things to step yourself into. Yeah. I mean, one of the companies I was working for, they paid for half of my MBA mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of additional training on top of that. And so it was, that was a place where, yeah, I was willing to take a little bit less for what I was getting paid, sure. but I had a great environment. I love the people that I was working with, great leadership. And, you know, I got to kind of define what my role was in that organization. But then, things changed and I wanted a, a bigger, the next thing I went to the CEO and said, Hey, uh, I, I need a different challenge. I've been doing the same thing kind of like five years, five times experience of two years, you know, over the 11 years I was there. 
And I said, oh, okay, take this, take this software that we've developed and see what you can do with it. Ended up spinning out a company from there. So mm-hmm. it's kind of defining your path, but seeing what's available. You know, sometimes we just have to ask the question, what else is there? Even within the confines of a job that we may have. And I, I think it's important to note, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm married to an entrepreneur and he is phenomenal at what he does. And he, that I could never see my husband working in a corporate space. He could never work for someone else. We often say (laughs) if for some reason his business went under, like he's just going to come on home and take care of the kids. Like there's no way he's going to report to someone else. I loved the corporate life. I loved this idea of, you know, kind of going into an office and having someone else make these decisions and the external validation when I received performance evaluation, never (laughs) ever in a million years thought that I would run my own business. It really came exactly what you just said, Craig. It came from this place where I, did, I wanted to define what was next for me and the next level of challenge. Yeah. And I couldn't find that in the corporate space. And the yeah. fastest way that I could create that opportunity for myself was to go off and do it on my own. Yeah. If you're serious about constant growth, the entrepreneurial path is something that's going to push you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> so Chris, what are you seeing today? What has happened in terms of the I don't know if it's numbers or percentages of people who are actually paying attention to and being intentional about their career advancement, not, and not necessarily just what's the next job because I lost this job or mm-hmm. I'm going to try and jump ship and make more money. What, where is the world today around career advancement? Sure. It, it differs a little bit depending on what generation we're talking about. So in 2018, Deloitte did this big management study And they found that now career development opportunities is in the top three items for career satisfaction, which Mm. has never been that high up in the list before in terms of what employees are looking for. So you see a lot more corporations and even mid to small businesses that are coming out here and saying, okay, what can we do to offer those type of opportunities to our employees to make sure that our managers know how to coach the employees and help them with their own career development. And a lot of that is coming through because we see that, um, the millennials and the Gen Z are, that is an absolute requirement for them because they know better than we did, which is to say, I'm not going to be in the same job for 10, 20, 30 years. Longevity is not an option. So you better help me get the right basis and foundation so that I can move on when I leave here, when you kick me out the door so I can go somewhere better. Um, And so we see this kind of surge coming from those younger generations. And then as a result, because the managers have to be trained to help them with their career Mm, development path, I then start to see that appetite come forward in those, you know, senior level and C-suite employees because mm-hmm. they're learning how to show the younger generation and their, or their, their um, less tenured employees, their staff members, and they're thinking, well, wait, I, I could apply those same things to myself. I mean, I'm not <laughs> stuck here. I can do something different. So I think a lot of it came out of this surge of, um, again, millennials, Gen Z saying, we want there to be more options. Part of what you owe to yeah. me in exchange for my loyalty and my everyday work is teach me how to run my career better. We've had a couple of guests actually talk about when somebody comes to work for them, they, they tell them, you know, you are going to be better off when you leave here than when you came. We're going to make sure that you get the training, you get developed, and that when you leave here, you're going to be more marketable than when you came in. Yes. To me, that's a win-win. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing we saw, you read the trend, God, that was what, 10, 15, 20 years ago when they said, oh, we're supposed to train our employees? Is that something <laughs> we should do? Because if we train them, won't they leave? And then we sort of saw this surge and all this leadership work come out and the research show like, no, they'll be more loyal. That same thing is happening right now as it relates to the career development, career growth. 
there are organizations that pay me to come in and teach their employees how to write resumes wow. and do so unabashedly because they know that they're going to use those resumes to try to get a promotion internally. And mm -hmm. if they don't, they're going to be darn grateful that that organization helped them get where they wanted to go. Yeah. Wow. That's a major shift in perspective. So good. And when you think about what, what happens is, you know, do you have a risk of training those people and having them leave or is the risk greater if you don't train them and they stay? Yes. And again, from a career perspective, if I'm not, you know, if there's so much pressure on succession planning and making sure we have, we're prepared for the next generation of leadership, and our employees don't know enough about how to write a real resume or to articulate their value in and outside of the organization. Mm -hmm. we, can't, we can't create a streamlined succession path because they're not making it through the interview process. Wow. So you have really viable candidates right there in your organization who can't get a seat at the table because they don't know how to talk about what they can do. Mm. Wow. So at the risk of offending tens of millions right now with my next question, I think I'm that's ready. probably right now. Let's go. When you were talking about millennials and Gen Z, mm -hmm. I, I'm not surprised at what you said at all. And these, right at the end, you said this word. You said, you owe me that for my loyalty. So my question, I guess my pushback is, I understand that dynamic, but that doesn't feel to me like someone owning their career advancement. Because if they don't get that from their employer, what I see too often is they don't do it. They go and find an employer that'll do it for them. And I guess I have some pushback to say, well, what does it mean to actually take, grab it by the, you know, grab the bull by the horns of your own career and yes, insist on it, but it's going to happen irrespective of whether that company gives it to you and pays for it. Are you saying even go spend your own money and time to, to get that training? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yes, and I think that there's, you know, there's some different segments there. It's the actual development process of learning how it is you should manage your career. It's creating advancement opportunities in terms of um, exposure and visibility within the organization. And then it's how it is the tools to actually execute that type of transition mm -hmm. as well. And so you see different companies supporting one or more of the three. And yes, I think people need to take individual ownership, certainly over some pieces of that, but they definitely feel like in the same way that a college career center kind of helps you get that next job, many, many employed individuals right now are looking for their company to make sure that they understand the best way to navigate the internal network of that company. Hmm. So what do you see? Uh, I want to talk, we may have covered a little bit earlier, Chris, but I want you to speak to this idea of the difference between career advancement, which is a phrase you're using regularly, mm -hmm. and I guess this idea of career transition. To me, it sounds like it means something very specific to you. It does. So when we use the term career transition, I am actively transitioning. I'm actively looking to go from one area to another. And that may be one department to another, one field to another, one industry to another, or simply I want to be in this exact same role as a senior data analyst, but I want to move at a bank, but I want to go to a different bank. So you're actively looking to transfer the role you're in and transition into something mm -hmm. else, either by choice or as we see happening all over the world right now with COVID and the change in the economy by force because they were kind of dumped into the job market and they need to figure out what to do. So I consider those individuals actively transitioning. I think if someone is actively advancing their career, that could be a task as, as, um, as not small, as non uh, <laughs> 
as simple as building your own personal board of directors. And not to say that that's a simple thing to do, but it doesn't mean that I'm actively moving my career. I'm looking to go somewhere else. I'm preparing for what the future of my career looks like. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds to me that for you, one element of career advancement is it's a mindset and a commitment that's independent of change. It may or may not relate to change. I mean, there's going to be change, but it may not be, hey, I'm ready to do this. I'm just continuing. It sounds like it's a foundation of something that Craig and I talk about, which is having a growth mindset. Absolutely. Yes. And as particularly if you're a high potential, you need to be aware, even if you've just gotten into a new role, your objective is to be as aware as possible uh, to make sure that you're putting yourself in situations so that when you're ready for that next step, two, three years down the road, you're well positioned for that. So let me ask the, the term, you've used that term several times, high potential. How would you define high potential as opposed to no potential? <laughs> uh, actually, no potential should be a interchangeable with former <laughs> <laughs> former team member uh, yeah. um, hmm. uh, you know i do use that phrase a lot i guess i consider high potentials individuals who have self-identified and been identified as others whether they are role models supervisors um, or even objective assessments within or outside of an organization as being um, high achievers who are likely to continue to climb a particular ladder or multiple ladders to move forward in their career. So um, a lot of individuals for great reason are interested in staying in a given role and that's where they want to be. And they're not interested in moving beyond that. They would fall outside of that category. Okay. Um, Some people are considered high potentials and they've just started their career, Mm -hmm. but it's clear that they show a lot of initiative and they want to be very proactive and that they have the likelihood of continuing to follow or continue to pursue uh, in a given field that they're interested in. And we also say a high potential would be someone who's a senior VP at an organization next in line to step into that CEO role. Okay, so capability of moving up. I, there's, there's a really interesting technology called requisite organization that actually gets at the science behind somebody's ability to move to that next level. Mm-hmm. So it might be something to, to look at, but in that assessment, you can actually determine, is this person ready for the next level of complexity? Because as you move up in an organization, work gets more complex in defined ways. And it'll actually tell you, are, you know, when that person's going to be ready for that, it may be five years out. But if you're looking at that and you're looking at the succession plan, you can do this for your entire team and see where, where everybody's going to be going. Very interesting stuff. Sounds like it. So Chris, um, one question is coming to mind. You've talked a few times about millennials. And so I want to ask you a question very directly about it. One of the biggest, I'll call it knocks on millennials, that I hear from business owners, business leaders is, millennials have a mindset, this is them speaking, that they want to be handed the keys now or really soon. I'm not experiencing that. What I am experiencing, and I, I applaud it, is millennials saying, I want you to show me a clear path to get those keys. Mm-hmm. And I would like your support in getting there. Yeah. But I want to know exactly, as close as exactly as it can be, what that looks like to get the keys. So how, what's your experience in that realm? Exactly yours, although I would add to it. And I want to know that someone else isn't going to get the key first, simply because <laughs> they've been hanging out here for 20, 30 years. Um, okay. Right? So it's more of a concern, you know, people, it's um, 
what we found in the baby boomer generation is much more that individuals felt like the tenure alone got you sort of a, not a pass, but sort of gave you permission to move up to that next level and to then sit, you know, sit pretty where you were. And millennials are kind of coming and saying, well, wait a minute, as long as you're still working and producing, I will respect you for being in that high level role all day long. But if you can just be there and your only reason for being able to have that title or bring in that income level is because of the amount of years you've been in the organization, that's what they find not fair. So millennials are more apt to be wanting to link your, um, your job reward with the amount of work that you're putting in. They want to know that it's outcome and um, result-based as opposed to simply how long you've been sitting around. I think that's about the best description of that mindset that I've, I've heard. And I think that makes so much sense. I, I'm in the same way. I would say if somebody's just there because they've been there for a long time, that, that holds no water with me. You know, I, w- I want to see somebody who is performing at that level and trying to get better. Yes, absolutely. So they just don't like it when people feel as though they can rest on their laurels. That's what exactly. it really comes down to. But they're more than, they want to know if I'm working and the guy next to me is working just as hard. If he's been here longer, then go ahead and promote him first. But if he's not doing anything and I've been working my butt off, yeah. I want to know that I have a fair shot here. That's not unreasonable at all. Couldn't agree. Yeah. No. And in full disclosure, according to some definitions, I technically fall into the millennial category. So <laughs> whatever I'm saying, if it sounds disparaging, I myself do technically classify as a millennial. Oh, gotcha. nothing disparaging yet. We've <laughs> no, got a little more time to do that. So I know you work with people on career advancement, but I'm going to ask you another question from the perspective of business owners and leaders, mm-hmm. how important do you feel it is for them to be very intentional, not just about clarity of direction and career, but to get, I'll just say millennials and younger team members into the room and into the conversations sooner rather than later, mm-hmm. whether or not it's by position or not, but get them involved in the conversations in the in the sessions, in the strategy sessions, so that they are part and they feel a part of creating what's coming. I think it's not just generational. I think across the board, diversity of thought is unbelievably valuable. So anyone who doesn't recognize that having a variety of different people at the table, whether it be their place in the organizational hierarchy, the background that they can bring, um, their actual age, demographic, I think it's important to have all those people at the table. And there's so much you know, we see so much coming out now around how that diversity of thought really leads to a much greater level of innovation than anything else would. Well, we're getting near the end of time, Chris, and I always like to end with some version of this question, which is we've spent some time, Craig and I have asked you questions. You've shared a lot. What's the question we haven't asked you that you need to answer for the people who are listening? Wow, that's a, that is a question. What question haven't you asked that I need to answer? I think um, based on our conversation, we talked a lot about values, and then we talked quite a bit around the actual process of career advancement. I think a piece that is valuable for for those who are high potentials and planning advancement is really around uh, your ability to articulate the value you bring to the table, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just getting clarity around um, what is important to you and fulfilling and what energizes you about your workspace and work capacity. It's how is it that you articulate that to your supervisor, to the people around you, whether it's in an interview or during your first 90 days, so that both you and the organization have a really clear sense of what you bring to that table and what you enjoy bringing the most. Wow, that sounds like we now need to learn to be salespeople. 
I mean, yes, everybody is a salesperson. You're selling your ideas. You're selling your, your future work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right out of the, right out of sales 101. Right yes. I love it. I love it. So is there anything in particular that you would like to promote as, as we're talking here? Sure. I know right now lots of people are struggling with a variety of different career transition mm-hmm. issues. And we actually just released a huge micro learning series on our website. So mm-hmm. this is actually on our career job seekers website. It's www.careercourage.com, which gotcha. is a, a subsidy of professional courage. And on our blog, it's completely free. There are tons of videos all about how it is that you can go about networking, job search strategy, creating that resume, articulating your value, LinkedIn, just everything that you would need to know if you are anticipating a transition. So I would encourage folks to check out the blog at careercourage.com. Awesome. And Chris, what is the best way for people to find and connect with you? I love it when people reach out to me on LinkedIn. uh, (laughs) That's it, Chris, and it's with a K, K K-R-I-S. McGuigan is M-C-G-U-I-G-A-N. Check me out on LinkedIn. Go ahead and send us a personalized invite. I don't like it when people blindly connect. Send a personalized invite letting me know that this is where you got to know me. And I'd love to connect and share ideas and articles and all that great stuff. So LinkedIn is the place to be for career advancement. So Chris, this has been fabulous. I knew it would be, and I knew it would be fun as well. We always wrap up with uh, one or two, what we call signature questions. And the question I want to start you on is wisdom. And we intentionally ask for what is the one piece of wisdom on top that people need to know and hear about career advancement? I think when you feel the fear, don't step back, step into it. (laughs) Wow. That's beautiful. And the second question is uh, books. I know you're a reader, but what's the one book that comes to mind that people need to read? whether it's about career advancement, leadership, or just how to show up the way they want to in their lives. Be a good human being. <laughs> yeah, how to not suck. No, um, Don't get crazy now. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, most recently I read Atomic Habits by James Clear. Have you yeah. guys read that? Really um, and I, he talks very specifically in one area. It's just generally a great book for your life in general, regardless mm-hmm. of both personal and professional but he talks specifically in one area around the implementation intention, which is really having a plan for where you want to get to and how you're going to do that. And as a project manager at heart, um, as someone who believes that you should have an active plan for your career advancement, whether or not it changes, you know, it should be fluid throughout your life, but you should always have a plan. I think that that book really hit home for me and was like a very simple way to just sort of look at how it is we set the stage for success in our life. So I would say uh, my latest, the latest greatest that I've read was Atomic Habits. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your time. And thanks for sharing your wisdom with our listeners and with Craig and I. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartavera Tribe. The Cartavera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartavera Tribe is a membership like none other. 
You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cardivera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast, Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.